It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. What are we born to do? Should we do what is expected of us or forge our own path in life? Today's special guest, psychologist and psychoanalyst, J. Herman Kleiger, explores these questions and more in his debut historical novel, The Eleventh Inkblot. The Eleventh Inkblot is a well-written and lovingly embroidered novel that is spellbindingly measured that is a spellbindingly measured narrative that entertains and enthralls. This is said by Kirkus Reviews, which is one of the better reviews that you can get. It is a novel that explores a mind torn between art and science, the horrors of war, and the invention of the Rorschach test. The 11th Inkblot invites the reader to become a passenger on a moving, interpretive journey of lost madness, acceptance, and redemption. J. Herman Kleiger was born and raised in Colorado. He graduated from Harvard and the University of Denver before serving as a psychologist in the Navy. A clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, his major works include Disordered Thinking and the Rorschach in 1999, Assessing Psychosis with Ali Khadivy in 2015, and Rorschach Assessment of Psychotic Phenomena. 2017. The ink, the 11th Inkblot is Jim's first novel, uh, and it is so great. Um, so let's get started. Uh, good morning, Jim. Welcome. Good morning, Randy. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you. Well, you know, um, I love all things that have to do with the mind, um, and so that's why this fascinated me so much. And your book, The Eleventh Inkblot, it's it's interesting. You know, when I heard the title, it's like, oh, well, what could that possibly mean? But when you read the book, um, it tells you basically the story of what that is, and um, and it weaves a story into how the Rorschach test actually got started. So can you give us a brief overview of what this story is? I know the main character is Anton. Uh, sure. Um, as you uh, as as you mentioned, I think when we when we spoke earlier, it is a historical fiction. Um, it's a coming of age story. Uh, there are hints of some magical realism. Uh, the story is written as a fictional memoir uh, about this man's life, uh, Anton Zelinsky. And it begins uh, in his early life. Actually, it begins with a very brief prologue uh, where uh, Anton, who's now an old man, uh, says that he's finally going to begin 
write, writing about his life. And his life is full of uh, mystery and intrigue, uh, the kinds of things that a small child is left wondering about when he views uh, his parents, uh, his father, a uh, gruff, um, mechanically-minded um, horologist, a, a, a watchmaker. And his mother, um, and by the way, this is set in the Ukraine in um, the early, a small village uh, uh, in, in, uh, at the turn of the, the, uh, the um, 20th century, just before, decade or so before World War I. And his mother is um, a, a very curious figure. She doesn't seem to fit with the surroundings. She dresses differently. Uh, she wears long scarves, flowing skirts. And one of her um, interests, she's a Romani, uh, uh, as we come to find out later. But she likes to um, use uh, ink blots to tell fortunes, to see if she can understand things about people, which is actually something that um, is part of the prehistory of, of uh, uh, inkblot usage in the Rorschachs. It, it was used. Inkblots were used in many different ways. And the story uh, uh, basically takes him uh, through the, um, the course of his life uh, as he tries to uh, put together the pieces of the things that don't make sense. Uh, there's some profound losses. Uh, there is the trauma of war as he gets tangled up in the uh, um, horrible Battle of Tannenberg in World War I, um, uh, uh, after which he's uh, a, a broken young man, uh, has descended into a state of madness um, and uh, decides that he's going to search for his mother, uh, whom he lost very early in his life under very mysterious circumstances. So that basically sets the, um, the uh, path for his uh, journey where he meets uh, a number of quirky characters and um, eventually his path leads him to the storied uh, sanitarium in um, Switzerland called the Berkholsley Clinic. And through that process, he meets, eventually meets uh, Herman Rorschach, who is in the process of uh, working on uh, his Rorschach experiment, developing the ink blots and so forth. And so it's a journey across time in this young man's life and uh, a, uh, I think, uh, first and foremost, a journey of integration and healing, self-discovery and healing, and self-forgiveness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. True. And um, he also meets Carl Jung. Carl, wait, I always say his name wrong. Carl Jung. Yeah, Jung. Carl Jung. He also meets Carl Jung. Um, yeah. So, so the eleventh ink blot. I just want to um, share that because what happened was his mother. They called her uh, Gypsy Witch because she was yeah. she was just strange. She was spiritual. She was, you know, reading people's minds and fortunes and things like that. Um, 
And his father was a ang- very, very angry man. And he burnt all his mother's artwork and all the ink blots. But Anton found one and saved it and carried it with him. Through, didn't he carry it throughout his life? Yes, he yeah. did. Uh, mm-hmm. He carried that uh, along with a couple of his father's watches. Uh, and again, his father, you, you mentioned that his mother was a very strange woman. She was strange in the context of this shtetl, this, this small village uh, called Zestavia, where he lived. And everybody was very, the, the colors were very uh, um, earth tone, dour. Uh, and she was this flamboyantly dressed character who didn't fit at all. And part of the mystery is how did she get there? What was she doing there? How did she and his father get together? Because they were as opposite as they could be. And um, uh, he, the father, gets enraged because she's an embarrassment. Uh, he goes away and comes back and discovers that she's got this room full of people watching her move the ink blots around, and he um, becomes enraged. He burns them all, but Anton sees that there is one that... Um, did not make it into the fire, and he does keep that. And when he eventually leaves his home in anger, uh, this is after his mother's disappeared, uh, he does take that with him, and he does carry that with him. Not sure why. He's not sure why he's carried it with him, (laughs) but uh, it just seemed like it was an important thing to do. And he also carries a watch with him that he was going to make for his papa, and there was um, a very disillusioning uh, event that occurred um, with his father and his older brother that made Anton decide to leave home in his late teens. And, and that's you know, where he and, ends up. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I was just going to say that's where he ends up uh, in, in a, a uh, uh, kind of an accidental conscript in the Imperial Russian Army. It is such a fascinating story, so intriguing. Um, Page-turner, definitely a (laughs) page-turner. Thank you. Yeah, it's really, really well written. Um, What was I going to (laughs) say? I lost my train of thought. Well, anyway, um, that is, and tell us how related that is to the actual story of Rorschach. And I know that you took artistic license, artistic liberty when you were writing this story. So, oh, I know what I wanted to say. Wait, I I want to back up. (laughs) Um, What interests me in the beginning is the dynamic between Chaim, his older half-brother, and his father and him. And because I... Um, focus most of my work on narcissistic abuse. It was interesting that you named Chaim the Golden Child, because right. that is one of the aspects of narcissistic abuse in a family. 
And so Anton was definitely the scapegoat child, and he was the invisible child. And his father just didn't care about him, just didn't want him around, and Aunt, and Chaim could do no wrong. So yes. uh, that's that fascinated me, you know, as as far as that. Well, the the relationship uh, that. Uh, uh, the f- father, who who in- incidentally uh, uh, is named Herman, there there are several Hermans. Uh, um, uh, obviously, the Herman Rorschach is kind of the good father, and uh, Anton's own father, uh, Herman um, Zelinsky, uh, was um, involved in a in a very much of a narcissistic relationship with his son Chaim. And the relationship between uh, Father Chaim and Anton really mirrors the relationship that um, Herman had with his own father, oh. uh, Is- Israel Zelensky, who had a favored son named Hyman. And um, we learn that Herman, uh, Anton's father, was very neglected as a child and was living to try to get his father's um, uh, approval and uh, so he repeated that in with with his sons and again I think the, the reader sort of has this um, this this sense in the early parts of the book that this is a father with two sons who are half brothers and then as the story uh, evolves one kind of wonders really who was Anton to what was the connection between Anton and and his father Herman? Uh, right. But but Herman, the father, uh, treated Chaim very much as a narcissistic kind of self object. Mm-hmm. That he uh, that he did not see Chaim for who he was, and Chaim finally um, kind of disavowed his father because of that. Uh, but yes, he idealized Hyman or uh, Chaim, and he devalued um, Anton. Anton is this swarthy, um, dark-haired, dark-complected boy who, again, just doesn't fit uh, in this in this family or village. Yes, thank you for um, elaborating on that because, um, as I said, I picked up on that that dynamic and. Um, and found that interesting, and I wanted to point that out because um, my audience is largely people who are tackling this horrible abuse, and so um, there I wanted to bring that reference to it. So, all right, so then I asked you before I switched and interrupted you, um, how closely oh, does, does this uh, story resemble the true story of how the Rorschach inkblot actually came to be. It it does in some important ways. Uh, I embellish things. Um, uh, Herman Rorschach was a, uh, a a real figure. He was a Swiss psychiatrist. Uh, his uh, came from a family. His father was an artist. And uh, uh, Herman went to medical school. Uh, he married a Russian woman who was also a physician. Um, 
he trained at the Berkholsley, but then went to a um, county um, uh, cannon hospital in Hirasau. It was a little country hospital, so he wasn't at this uh, major um, uh, institution. He trained there at the Berkholsley. Uh, but characters like uh, Bloiler, Eugen Bloiler, uh, was a was a um, uh, iconic figure in psychiatry in the uh, early 19th or 20th century. He actually coined the term schizophrenia, hmm. which before then had been referred to as dementia praecox. But he was the one that uh, that uh, came up with that term. And of course, Herm, um, Carl Jung is a real figure who probably is known better than any of these these right. uh, these other figures. Um, and Rorschach uh, um, was uh, doing research with uh, ink blots. There was a lot of uh, research going on at the Berkholsley and in the uh, scientific community, and. Um, Jung was more interested in a word association test, and uh, Rorschach uh, uh, had been dabbling in in ink blots, uh, uh, trying to find out um, what uh, what ink blots could tell us about uh, uh, the organization of a person's mind. Um, so he developed this. Um, test over time with many, many, many ink blots, 40 or more ink blots. They weren't random. He worked very hard because the ink blots, and I think I mentioned this in the book in one of the quotes attributed to him, they needed to look enough like something, but not too much. So if they were just a mess, then people couldn't really do much interpretive work with them. Uh, on the other hand, if they looked too uh, too much like uh, something real, then that didn't leave enough room for the the play of the of the mind. Um, so uh, he eventually settled for ten ink blots, which really um, I guess is a a very important point because uh, m- my story is called the eleventh ink blot and. Uh, the Rorschach test itself, as it's been used for the last uh, 100 years, uh, has 10 standard ink blots, the same ones. Um, so uh, Rorschach um, uh, published his book, and it's called Psychodiagnostic. It was published in 1921. It was not well received by the scientific community. Um, and uh, he died a year later at the age of 37. Wow. And uh, the book tells of that, that he, that he died of a, um, uh, I believe it was a ruptured appendix that uh, um, they, they could not uh, repair in time to save him. So he died at a very early age. Um, the character of Rorschach that I, portray in the book um, really uh, was described in a wonderful book by a author named Damien Searles called Ink Blots that really tells almost uh, in a biographical manner about uh, the life of Rorschach, uh, his professional life, his family life, 
and kind of the legacy of the Rorschach test. Uh, Cyril's really described Rorschach, Herman Rorschach, as a as a mensch, as a man ahead of him t- his time. He was a, uh, had a lot of uh, f- uh, feminist values and really uh, believed that uh, that women should be uh, trained as physicians. Um, and uh, so again, I probably embellished. Uh, uh, because of my own sort of wishes to see him as a as a very uh, good and nurturing figure, um, and uh, I, how how well that fits the actual uh, character, I, I'm I'm not sure, but it's it's uh, was fun to imagine that. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. So you've <clears throat> you've done a lot of writing and <clears throat> research into. Um, Herman Warshak and his life and his work. What got you interested in that? Well, I, I, 40 years ago as a graduate student, um, I was first introduced to the Warshak test, and um, I was fascinated by it then. And... Um, after graduate school, after I'd been in the Navy for a while, I had the opportunity of going to the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, uh, that had a very, very storied history uh, of uh, psychoanalytic thinking and humane treatment and uh, training psychologists in the use of instruments like the Rorschach. Um, so uh, I trained there. I um, lived for uh, a number of years after my training. When I got out of the Navy, I went back and lived for another 10 years in Topeka and had a um, a sort of a very um, loving network of, of friends and uh, uh, others who, who shared these interests and uh, continued to uh, teach and practice and write about the Rorschach, particularly its value in helping us understand um, disturbances in thinking and reasoning and perception and um, basically helping us learn things, discover things about someone that they uh, that they had a hard time uh, uh, seeing or understanding about themselves. Um, so my, a lot of my background is in uh, uh, psychological evaluations using instruments like the Rorschach to try to answer questions. With those inkblot tests, are there typical responses both um, in in various um, that reveal various uh, states of mind or thought processes. So, <clears throat> would there are there ones that are often um, that people often respond to? You know, so uh, there's one that looks kind of like a butterfly. Um, are there typical responses that are that you get? Sure. Yes, there are. Uh, there are um, typical responses that are 
um, actuarially based uh, in uh, over the years giving the uh, the procedure to or the test to um, thousands and thousands of uh, subjects, you begin to see which types of images uh, are more common uh, and um, uh, typical and which which are uh, very unusual and, and uh, um, uh, not at all common. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of, uh, what would someone see that was not um, necessarily um, a positive, positive image or, you know, um, I don't know which what word to use, but so you know, yeah. I use the word butterfly. Well, so, what would someone see in that picture that would indicate that there was something going well, on? Well, well, you 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 um, want someone uh, to taking the the test uh, to appreciate the fact that um, we're we're asking them to represent something because really these are ink blots they they aren't supposed to be anything and uh there are no right or wrong answers um so we would um part of an assumption in going into a test like the Rorschach is that the the respondent understands that this is an and kind of an as if uh um experience that that these are not real pictures uh you know sometimes people might say well what is this supposed to be what is it really uh and it's not it's it's up for you to decide and so we'd like somebody to um balance uh the objective features of the ink blot um with uh, uh images that they have in their own mind uh, if the images they have in their own mind uh, 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 overrun the uh, appreciation for the reality of the contours of the blot, then uh, that might be a problem. Um, if somebody looks at a blot and responds in a highly personal, uh, personalized way or gives you a response that doesn't match uh, the contours of the blot. Uh, you mentioned just sort of hypothetically, if somebody saw a butterfly, and uh, let's let's uh, say that 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 might be a very common response on a certain card. Um, if somebody looks at that and they do, they they don't tell you that they see this thing that most other people see, but instead. Uh, tell you that it reminds them of a train station or it reminds them of uh, their uh, uncle's um, left foot or something very, very bizarre <laughs> okay. where, right. there's, where there's really no correspondence um, between the contours of the blot. Okay. And it departs a great deal from what most other people see. And it's embellished with with uh, personal meaning, um, then then that's that's that alerts the examiner that there's that there's sort of a departure going on where kind of 
of the person's internal world might be um, encroaching too much on, on their ability to be objective, to see things more um, uh, uh, accurately. Okay. So basically you're not making a diagnosis, um, a clear diagnosis. It's indicating things which you will further evaluate. Is that what you're saying? That is a, a really good point. Um, all, all psychological instruments, uh, uh, like the Rorschach and many others that are used, um, are really not diagnostic tests. They're, they're um, methods of understanding um, uh, the uh, different functions of the mind. Uh, uh, there's a lot of cognitive tests and neuropsychological tests that help us understand memory and uh, processing and concentration and things like that. Psychological tests uh, that help us understand how a person reasons, how accurately they perceive, um, how much they can put themselves in another person's shoes, like empathy. So those are psychological functions. And then based on understanding something about how a person's mind works. We might uh, look at history and then come up with a diagnosis, but the tests themselves don't tell us the diagnosis. Okay, I got it. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. And, you know, in having a conversation with um, a patient, you may not get the, this um, depth of information. They may not be forthcoming with the depth of information as they would um, if they're given something specific to answer or interpret. Yes. Um, in, in a direct conversation, in an interview situation, uh, people uh, can withhold because they're not comfortable disclosing, um, or people might not tell you things because they might not understand them. They might not be aware of them. Okay. Um, one of the values of the Rorschach and a lot of other testing methods is that they help us, um, they tell us things that, that uh, uh, the, the patient or respondent um, can't tell us because they're unaware uh, or because they are inhibited and, and don't want to, um, to, um, to share those things. Okay. So what kind of, um, what kind of disorders, uh, emotional, mental um, disorders, have you seen uh, based on, on the inkblot test and um, how were their answers related to that? So in other words, you know, I know that you've probably diagnosed many different kinds of conditions. And um, can you come up with, can you um, cite an interesting, really interesting one that pointed to a particular um, diagnosis? Um, 
I think the the problem is uh, going through so many files in my mind where there are uh, uh, so many examples. Let me give you something from uh, actually Herman Rorschach's um, uh, some of his uh, early uh, uh, case examples okay. of uh, responses that uh, that were indicative of a disturbance in thinking. Okay. Um, A patient looked at one of the blots and said, this looks like the, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, the liver of a, um, the liver of a, of a, a statesman. There's another adjective in, in there, but I just, I can't, pull it up right now. Uh, So uh, this was a a response where the person was seeing both the statement, the statesman, the person, a human, uh, at the same time he was seeing a liver. They were sort of merged, uh, condensed into one image, which is uh, a severe kind of collapse of a boundary between two incompatible um, uh, entities or frames of reference, uh, uh, a, a liver and a person are not co- cohabiting right. the same space. So this was a, a response. The liver of a, I wish I could think of the word, a, a, a noble statesman or something like that. Um, there are a lot of, uh, that's one of the things that's valuable about the Rorschach is it's a performance test. It's a a, uh, problem-solving test. Uh, People have to do something. It's not answering questions on a questionnaire like the MMPI or something. Um, So they they look at ink blots, and they tell you what it might be, and um, they they talk, and they uh, uh, you, as the examiner, has a, a, a rich sample of, of their verbalization. So that is certainly a way to study um, how people think and ways in which their thinking becomes uh, 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 disorganized or illogical. And those sorts of things can show up uh, in responses on the ink blots. Other kinds of conditions besides disturbances in thinking, um, uh, there are ways in which uh, narcissistic uh, organization can can show up in in one's responses, uh, depressive, um, uh, uh, under underpinnings, uh, uh, depressive feelings can. Uh, uh, be represented in in one's responses. You you might notice something here, Randy, with the way I'm responding to the questions. I'm I'm trying to be careful because one of the things that we do as psychologists is that we're we we are entrusted with trying to um, keep a certain amount of uh, security around uh, tests and test responses. Um, okay. The internet uh, 
has completely uh, turned that on its head. It used to be that, you know, the Rorschach cards themselves were um, uh, designed to be kept secure and not in the public domain. Well, all of the blots are published on the Internet, and there's a ton of information um, that's available about uh, what responses mean, and a lot of times these are used by uh, people who are involved in forensic uh, uh, situations, custody disputes, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So in, in my kind of uh, hedging of my answers and not giving you too much of a, of a uh, explicit example, I think I'm maybe bending over backwards a little bit in the... In the okay. um, Desire to be to be kind of careful. Right, I understand. And, and I, un- I, I unfortunately probably yeah. not being all that clear. Now, well, you know that's okay, and I get that. You know, I totally get that. Um, so, would you do you use this with every patient, or do or do you use it based on um, something you suspect in an interview, or something you yeah pick up something you pick up in an interview? Um. I don't use it with all the um, people I evaluate. Uh, I usually decide that I'm going to do it based on the conversation with the person who's referring their patient to me. And if there are lots of questions about, um, uh, I don't understand my patient. Uh, I've had her in therapy for X number of months and she's got some attentional problems, she's anxious, she's depressed, but something else seems to be going on. Um, I want to find out just how depressed she is. I want to find out more about her, you know, her personality organization. So the Rorschach is really um, helpful in those kinds of referrals uh, as a way of taking a deeper look into how someone uh, uh, structures their experience how they think, how they reason, uh, what kinds of models that they have in their mind in terms of self and others. Uh, so if I am referred somebody who has um, some school-related problems and there's no evidence of psychosocial concerns, I probably wouldn't do this, but I end up, I end up using it a lot. Um, more than more than maybe sixty percent of the uh, clients uh, with whom I work. Really, well, that's, that's yeah. pretty pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> so that is the psychoanalyst, because you're a psycho- clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. So psychoanalyst would be the um, evaluation through the, this kind of um, testing. Is that what a psychoanalyst, right. that's what psychoanalysis well, is? Okay. Well, psychoanalysis doesn't involve testing. Um, uh, there are those of us who are analysts and who do psychological testing, but uh, most psychoanalysts are, don't, are, are not psychologists who do testing. Uh, it's it's easy for people to to kind of get confused between all these these uh, 
professions that begin with psyche. Psycho, psycho. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Um, so what, what, it, so what exactly is what exactly is a psychoanalyst? Well, it's an advanced um, level of of training and practice. Uh, uh, mostly psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers. It used to it used to be pretty much restricted to uh, medical doctors, but over the last uh, thirty or more years, uh, the field has opened up. So there are a lot of social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists and um, the psychoanalysis as a uh, form of therapy still exists. It's evolved uh, uh, quite a, a great deal since uh, uh, the 1920s and uh, the era of Freud and so forth. It's, it's really matured and there's been uh, a tremendous uh, uh, research um, in the past uh, uh, 50 years or so. Uh, there are, um, there are uh, practitioners who have uh, very active analytic caseloads, uh, which involve seeing people three and four times a week, maybe five times a week uh, over a period of years. Uh, often using the couch um, as it's uh, portrayed uh, uh, historically. Uh, and this kind of uh, treatment uh, is, uh, uh, can be useful for people who have rather deep-seated or deeply entrenched character uh, problems. Um, you know, some of the people that you write about uh, who have severe personality uh, disorders, narcissistic disorders, um, may uh, um, be helped uh, by the right analyst with the right kind of training in this in this uh, intensive treatment. Uh, a lot of other psychoanalysts uh, um, don't do a lot of psychoanalysis per se, but they do psychotherapy based on psychoanalytic principles. Uh, trying to understand somebody um, at a deeper level. Um, okay. Okay. I mean, that's, that clears it up. Yeah, that does clear it up. Um, was there something okay. in particular that got you interested in um, the psych- field of psychology before you, you know, actually embarked on this um, training and, you know, schooling and... Was there something particular that got you interested in this? You know, um, there, there, I think there, there was. I'm trying to to think back. Um, I, I took some psychology classes in college. Uh, it seemed like a good fit. Uh, I was curious. I was interested in understanding people but i think at a deeper level i i was uh you know i admit that i wanted to help people um and then over the years i sort of stopped telling people that because it seemed like in graduate school it was not uh very cool to say that you got into this field because you wanted to help people it was 
it was better to say that you got into it because you wanted to study the mind or do research. But I think I remember very clearly feeling as though I wanted to help people. And I had a wonderful mother who uh, was a nurse and I think just uh, filled me with, with uh, goodness and, and that kind of uh, desire to help. And I really attribute that to her. Um, oh, that's that's amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah. I love hearing yeah. that someone had a really good mother that was a good influence. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm I am really I am really lucky. I think I struggled more with uh fathers and I think that's pretty clear in the book that there's that there's um that there's a struggle with fathers and um you know I didn't really know this until after I'd written the book, but my father is all over the book. I write about this in the acknowledgments, um, but uh, my father's war experiences uh, uh, came to life in the book. He was a World War II combat veteran, um, uh, but stories that I had heard him tell until my eyes glazed over somehow um, – I wrote this book in, in the last year of his life when he was dying. And uh, there was sort of a magic that occurred, I think, with a lot of that stuff on my mind that um, um, found voice in, in the narrative of Anton's uh, war experience. So there are several stories that are plucked right from things my father told me that he had experienced. Yeah, my father was a, was a World War II vet. Um... And um, I, I, when you say he told him till your eyes glazed over, <laughs> I, yeah. I can definitely relate to that. Oh my gosh, years and years of the same stories. Um, but you know, it's funny because when he, when I was growing up, and his and his world was so much wider, um, I never heard about this. He was a really? younger man. He was kind of living on the outside, and then as he got older. Everything constricted. His friends were dying. He wasn't working. So he was reading a lot of uh, books on World War II, and he was beginning to remember and started talking about things. And um, my sister and I heard these um, all the time as, as he got older. And I, I had really not been interested and, uh, you know, kind of, socially, politically, kind of the, the uh, obverse of my dad. But uh, somehow the story seeped in, and I think uh, the, the book in some ways is a homage to my father's, my dad, and my, my analyst. I had had a, a wonderful uh, analyst named Erwin Ir- Rosen, and um, he has inhabited a couple of the wiser characters in the book and um and then herman rorschach whom i of course never knew but was sort of a professional father like figure Mm. so yeah my father talked about it a lot and you know it dawned on me um, a couple of years ago that that was his identity before he met my mother, who's a narcissist. And um, I believe that, over, you know, she basically robbed him of his identity. Uh, she's 91 and he's 96, and they're still 
still same dynamics. Whoa. But I believe oh I believe goodness. that yeah, I believe that um, his whole identity was based on the World War Two and his experiences there, and I don't think he had a self. I think he lost a self over the years, over 75-some years. So that's why he was always talking about that. that that's, this is my interpretation of, of why that went well, on. Well, that kind of helps me think about my dad a little bit in that light, that his identity, um, you know, he always wore his World War II 36th Infantry uh, ball cap and he had some medals some pins on it but it, it really was uh, a, a core part of his identity and um, yeah it seems like the other things in his life just sort of melted away and, and that was it mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned a narcissistic mother I'm, I'm writing another uh, a manuscript another novel and there's a key figure who's a very narcissistic mother um, and so I'm going to write about the effect that's had on the uh, on, on oh. the, the children yeah, yeah. oh well you're coming back you're coming back because yeah okay. I definitely want to know when that when that comes out um, let Connor know that um, you know that I said that's that fine. that I want to I want to see yeah, you again. Okay. I want to talk to you again. Okay. Um, because, yeah. yeah. That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Have you yeah. have you seen a lot of nar- people with narcissistic personality disorder or the abused, um, the those who have been victimized and abused by these people in your practice? Have you seen a lot of either or both? Well, I've seen it in my practice all the time. And I see it every day when I turn on the television. <laughs> uh, and I think that uh, that uh, that there's probably no better education for the public on narcissistic uh, uh, pathology dynamics um, treatment as a, of people as objects than. Um, what we've witnessed uh uh and it's it's been you know playing on prime time i i think the i think people have a a real inside out kind of understanding of 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 pathological narcissism um but your question and and that's a that's that's okay a, a uninvited st- sidebar but yes i i very much in my practice uh uh absolutely um, pe- people who were um, uh, engaged in uh, an abusive relationship with a narcissistic partner um, or people who have uh, uh, a lot of narcissistic um, troubles themselves. Now, they, they're, they often... Folks like that won't come into treatment unless they get very depressed, and uh, that that can be the other kind of the other face of, of pathological narcissism is severe depression, um, where the the person lives in two worlds. One is I'm the best, uh, I'm the best, uh, and then if something goes wrong, uh, they're the worst, and right. can collapse into a, a profound depression. 
And, and my understanding, you, yeah. My understanding is that um, they don't stick around very long, and they um, they tend to dismiss the therapist as once the therapist begins to identify really who they are. They that's sort of when they that's their exit point. That's sort of when right, they leave. Right. Have you experienced that? Oh sure. Um, yeah. You can't tell a narcissist yeah, they're absolutely. a narcissist. right right without some small amount of of self-reflective ability or self-awareness right exactly Uh, yeah 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 so um so anyway well so your book is the 11th ink lot um and uh, I do highly recommend this story. It's, it's just really fascinating. I'm not much of a historical fiction um, person, but, you know, books come my way with every guest, and I get exposed um, to some amazing things that I would not normally have picked up. So, you know, this really this is just a, a great story. Um, Jim, do you have a website? Uh I I do. I'm in the process actually of having all my my uh, social media um, uh, given a facelift. Um, but my website is uh, Kleiger dot com. Okay, and Kleiger is K L E I G E R. J H K L E I G E R dot com. Okay, perfect. Correct. Um, and your book is available through all the channels, I would imagine. Right, right. I have an author's page uh, on on Amazon. The book's there. It's available in Kindle. Um, debating whether to put it on an audio, make an audio book, and uh, and so just. Uh, um, Kindle, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Amazon, and um, it's probably the best place to get it. Okay, perfect. So in, in your writing of the next novel, <laughs> if you need any information about a narcissistic mother from a point of view of someone who's experienced it, I'm, I'm here. Just give me a call. Well, that's um, interesting. I, I I will take you up on that because um, – <laughs> Much of the book book is going to be told through the voice of her daughter, who's a psychology oh, professor. Cool. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, yep. Yeah. I'm here to help. Okay. I would love to help. Thank you, Randy. Thank you so, so much. It, it's been it's been fun talking to you. Thank you. It's been fun talking to you too. We got we we really covered a lot of territory, um, but it's it's been great. So yeah. So I'm available and. Um, you know, maybe we'll touch base at some point in the future. Well, I'd like that. Yeah. Uh, be safe and, and stay well. Yes, you too. All right. Well, it's been fun. Um, have a really great day. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show or any other show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. Um, let me see. I think this Friday is Free Advice Friday, where I take your calls and answer your questions. Yep, yeah, 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 yeah. July 10th 
is at 11 a.m. Eastern is the day that I take your calls and answer your questions about uh, narcissistic abuse. Um, if you have anything you want to share, that's a great time to, to do it. Other people do need to hear it. And I, I really do um, love when I get callers. Sometimes I don't, and then I have to do the whole thing. <laughs> but if you have something to say, um, I would encourage you to call in. The number is 424-220-1801. The show is at 11 a.m. Eastern. If for some reason you're not available to call in at that time, you can email me your comment or question to loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com, and I will answer that on air. Other people will love to hear what you have to say. Trust me, it really helps to hear other people. I mean, here you can, if you listen to this interview, you can hear how um, my experience is helping someone who has tremendous amount of experience and um, and credentials. So, you know, we all help each other. Anyway. That's the end of the show. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.